My name is Dr. Fabrice Robert Lubin, and I am a clinical psychologist. And I am Rachel Wagoner, and I am a clinical therapist, and welcome to Mindful Chatter. This is where we keep it real, keep it relevant, catching up with one another, and most importantly, catching up with you. So it's a rainy, kind of drizzy Thursday. Slow day. How are you feeling? I'm feeling slow. I'm feeling down. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling a thousand different things today in particular. How are you feeling? I fractured my foot last week. So I'm supposed to go to the doctor today. So I've been forced to kind of like have this slower movement with everything I've been doing. I can't even run. And so even though the weather kind of picked up a little bit, it's just been this kind of slow glacial pace to everything and kind of walking like I have a bum leg. Hmm. Do you do you run? I, I guess I've never really... When playing with my daughter, I, I, I have to <laughs> at times, so... <laughs> I have to run after something. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Chasing buses as usual. <laughs> I can't help but feel in this space that um, there was a there was a moment in watching you this week where I saw you going through something that I had no kind of connection with. It wasn't my story. It was about your life and you're sitting there in the studio with me having this like really intense personal conversation with your family. Yeah, I really let you in. I was really vulnerable in front of you in that moment for sure. And I felt myself just feeling I wasn't sure what to say or what to do, but I just knew that I just had to kind of just wait with you in that space sure and i don't know if i wanted that i i this week in particular i don't know what i need so i'm going through something pretty heavy i'm going through a a grandparent being very ill and in the process of probably passing away soon. Um, it's one of those, don't really know when, but he's older. He um, was diagnosed with stage four li- liver cancer. He'd been falling a lot, hadn't been very hungry. Um, so he's been getting more ill. And on Saturday, you know, it, it, most of the time people are, are saying he's been in like really good spirits and he's been, you know, maybe quieter. He's kind of a quiet fellow anyways, but, um, we didn't think it would be really anytime soon, but we didn't really know when it would be. We didn't know if it would be a week, three weeks, two months, six months, you know, we had no idea. So I was just kind of living my life this weekend. Um, I was celebrating a friend's 30th birthday, one of my best friends, and I was having like a really joyous weekend. And then I get this phone call from my dad and he leaves a message. I was out to dinner with a friend 
Um, and then he texts me and he just says, I need you to call me back. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> so I, I excuse myself um, from dinner. So I'm outside, it's rainy, it's cold. There are people like buzzing around because it's a Saturday night. So everyone's out, they're having fun. And my dad just says, hey, just want to let you know your grandpa has kind of taken a turn. And I wanted to talk to my mom in that moment because it's her dad. So I like tried to message her and she didn't answer. And I really wanted to be there for her. And so then she calls me by, like called my brother and checked in with him. And my brother's just not very close with my grandfather. Um, but I find a special bond with him. He got me like my first internship in the psychology world because he was involved in this psychiatric hospital. So he was the one that really like led me down this awesome path to being a therapist. And so I find that special connection with him. And I call my brother and he's like, you know, Rachel, like I've had to go through all of these losses with our other grandparents. You were too young to be able to deal with it. So I had to go through those before and I just, I want you to do what you need to do. I want you to talk to mom and figure out, you know, what she needs in that moment. And I kept saying, like, I just want to find out, like, what does my mom need? Like, how can I help her? How can I be there for her? So I get on the phone with her and she is very, I don't know, dismissive is not the right word, but she just is like trying to protect me from this. She doesn't want me to experience this. And I'm very adamant. I'm like, I'm coming with you. I'm booking a flight tonight. I'll be there tomorrow. Like I'll, I'll go to Baltimore with you. I'll, I'll do this together. We'll do this together. And she's like, no, no, like we're, you know, I just, I don't, I don't, it's not that I don't want you to come, but I don't want you to have to experience this. And, and then my dad gets on the phone and, and he's like, Rachel, just listen to your mother. <laughs> you know, he's not meaning to be dismissive, but he's just like, you don't, why don't you think about this? Let us get there first. Let us see like what's actually going on. So this brought up a lot of different layers for me. I'm now old enough to understand death. When I was, my other grandparents passed when I was two, 10 and 14. Now I'm 28, almost 29. Now I understand death. I understand what it looks like, but I wanted to be there to see my grandfather, but I also wanted to be there to help my mother. And I felt like she was treating me almost like a child and trying to protect me from something that is really heavy. And I felt, no, I, I think I can actually handle this. Like, I think I can deal with this. So then you got to experience a very different side of me. So I kind of wonder what that was like for you in that moment as I'm kind of like not battling, but really trying to advocate for myself and my needs while also trying to be there for my mom. Grief somehow feels as if it's interrupting life. That image of you just being at a bar and you're surrounded by people you love and you're having a great time and all of a sudden there's this phone call and it's life 
telling you that there's these other things happening. And it and it was watching you in that in that now understanding fully more of the context of it. At the time I, I, I still feel I was just watching you try to contain something that's so much larger than ourselves. That's exactly what I was trying to do. I was trying to contain something instead of just letting it be. I went to my therapist twice this week and I this entire week I've been trying to contain and I've been trying to figure out what it is that I need and I can't figure it out. I can't. I've been trying to reach out to people and then when I get around people I don't want to be around people. I try to distract myself with work which actually has been helping a little bit but then by the end of the day I'm completely exhausted. I've tried to work out, I've tried to do yoga, I've tried to do everything. So then this in turn is me trying to control and contain something that I don't think can be contained. That activity at times can create the illusion of purpose. Yeah, it can. So here you are trying to find a road that gives you a space to, it makes me think of how we look for things to center ourselves, especially even as, as clinicians, we're often, how do I ground myself in this moment right before I enter into a room with another person? Right. Because I, I didn't want to stop my day-to-day. I, I ended up taking off Sunday because I just, I couldn't do it on Sunday. I couldn't manage it. I couldn't sit with other people. I wouldn't have been helpful for other people. But thinking about my grandfather, you know, and what he wants for me, because he's still around and, and how he would go about saying all this, he'd be like, no, go to work. Like, don't worry about me. Come on the weekend. If you want to see me, we'll hang out. We'll, you know, watch TV together. We'll talk about all the awesome things you're doing. And he wouldn't want me to stop my life because you know, he's kind of stuck at home in this process, you know, and I worry about him being in pain, but I mostly worry about my mom and wanting to be there for her and her kind of not letting me be and her saying, no, no, I want to protect you from this because I'm your mom. You're not my mom. (laughs) Right. And and just listen to how many people are trying to contain something that once again, is so much bigger than us. There's that acuteness too of time mm. when we're experiencing something, knowing that's that we need to organize ourselves and and I need to be there. And if I'm not there, are there things that I'm going to regret? Are there things I'm going to miss out on? Or is there some element of this that I'm going to lose? Right. And your family and yourself are both going back and forth in this space and just trying to to grasp something that's so ungraspable. Yeah. And I, explaining grief and going through, because I haven't, it's not a loss, but it's stirring up a lot of family things. It's stirring up feeling invalidated. It's stirring up not feeling connected to others, not getting my needs met, even though I have no idea what they are. Or even loudly, your position as an adult now, someone who wants to stand with your parents, 
right. and wants to stand as a support for those other people in your life. And they're kind of almost not wanting to let you go through that phase because even for themselves, it's overwhelming. It's too much. Right. Because for everyone, this is hard. You know, even my dad is the one that's like, I've got your mom. Like, you don't have to worry about it. And he even said as he and I were going back and forth, like, I'm just trying to protect you from this. I've been through this and I don't want you to have to deal with it. And being in that room with you, I got kicked out of my um, my studio space because someone else had an appointment in my office. And so I went into Fabrice's room and being in that room, having that conversation with you there was hard for me. I felt like I needed to contain it. I felt like I needed to censor. But I also felt... I don't know. I felt unsafe, but I also felt safe because I knew you weren't going to judge me, but I felt like you were led into a part of my life that I don't let people into unless I choose to. And I felt like in that moment, maybe I didn't get to choose because I didn't really have anywhere else to go in that, in that time. I think you're also sharing something that I found through this project that we're doing together, which is how when we relinquish that control, suddenly connection is possible and connection in other frequencies that we maybe never even envisioned. You know, after watching you go through this and I remember just kind of approaching you and saying, hey, I'm here for you. If there's anything that you need from me, I completely like recognize your strength and all of this. And for me, I was just, I just felt grateful. I felt grateful that you were willing to put your guard down because it meant that there's a lot of stuff that I always think that I, I have to hide or things that I always have to contain. And so watching you kind of lose yourself in that moment makes it okay for me to lose myself in other moments. And you have with me a few times. And that's how people find each other right. is through losing themselves in these moments and, and not trying to contain everything. And being vulnerable and opening up and allowing for that connection. And, you know, because I've been so scattered and all over the place and emotionally very, very activated, I have been more attuned to needing that connection and not getting it. So I had a, a bit of a disagreement with one of my best friends because I felt very unsupported by her just by an action. We had plans and she forgot about them and made other plans and automatically that just opened like an unnecessary can of worms because I was already really activated. Yeah. I think that that's that part about, about grief and going through this grieving thing. I find that it can be so like the brain is an oil spill always. The brain doesn't designate, Hey, I'm only going through the grief of my grandfather potentially passing away soon. 
So this won't bother or cause any disruption in other service area of my life or other values that I think are important. I can't put it in its own little box. <laughs> right. Neurologically, everything is kind of flooded. Everything is kind of a, a very, very fragile constellation of thought and feeling. So when you go through that experience of, well, this person doesn't have time for me, it can quickly turn into who has time for me? Does anyone even care about what I'm going through? Does anyone care about my suffering? Am I alone in this? There was so much resonance in this image of, of this phone call you got from your father, and it, it kind of opened up this wave of, of memories for me, which was when I found out about my, my cousin passing away in 2008. Similar to you, I had been out celebrating with a friend. I think she actually had arrived just in town and we were gonna have this great night together. And I remember we were singing some of our favorite songs while we're walking down the street and we're going up to my apartment. And I remember thinking like, we're gonna have like, we're gonna have wine, we're gonna have a great time. It's just gonna be boisterous. And then in the middle of it, suddenly my cell phone rings and it's my father and he's telling me that my cousin was shot and killed and i remember falling to the ground on my knees confused and not even being able to speak my friend instantly just kind of made herself invisible. Um, maybe, maybe gratefully so. Maybe that's what she was supposed to do. She just kind of retreated into my room. I don't even remember if I cried or not. I think after that, it fell into planning, trying to book a flight to get back to Florida, trying to organize myself. One of the things that I think about is my father had asked me if I would do the eulogy for Teddy, my cousin. And I remember I immediately agreed, of course, sure, yes. And I booked a flight for, I believe it was almost the next day. And I was at the airport and we had a layover and I decided to use that time to start writing this eulogy. And I just started sobbing in the middle of O'Hare or wherever I was. And I couldn't stop and nobody said anything. Nobody checked in on me. No one asked if I was all right. No one was like, why is this guy writing a lot of things and crying? I got on board the plane and I was still trying to write this thing and it was just escaping me. I felt like I wasn't going to be able to do it any justice. It wasn't going to come out right. It wasn't going to be representative of this person who had represented such an older brother to me in my life. And I started to get just exhausted with the task. So I just put it down and I closed my eyes and I fell asleep. And I woke up maybe like 30 minutes later to this woman screaming next to me saying, what's wrong with his face? 
and I turned over and I realized that my nose had been bleeding and I had just basically been like gushing blood all over my face and so now the whole plane is up in arms and the stewardess is running over to me and she's like are you okay and I'm like yeah I'm just having a nosebleed because of the altitude and I was crying and she was just like get out of your seat sir and no one wants to touch me because I'm covered in blood you know and I go into I go into the the airport or the airplane the uh, bathroom for the plane and I'm not sure how long I didn't take me that long to wash my face but I wasn't even sure how long I was supposed to stay in there because I was maybe maybe I, there's like an appropriate time for me to come out. Am I allowed out yet? Yeah. <laughs> Finally, I come out and I sit back down, and the woman nervously stares at me the whole flight. When the actual funeral came up. Our family was, in typical Lubin fashion, a bit late. Mm -hmm. Um, And I stood up in front of this audience and I quoted Notorious B.I.G. because Teddy loved hip-hop and and music and he was a truly, truly kind of really funny and artistic kind of person. And... The part that I I keep recalling is the moment where I saw the casket and it was open and it was amazing because they recreate a version of your living body that doesn't look anything like your living body. And I remember I approached it and I saw something that was like a version or a mask of Ted. And I had never cried harder in my life because I realized that that's where so much of my memories, my experience, my relationships, my connections would go. And I turned to look at my other cousins, Teddy's siblings, And all I could think about was Alan. And I thought about what does it mean to lose a brother? What does it mean to lose a cousin? What does it mean to lose anybody? And it felt like the floor dropped away. Since then, a lot of what I write, a lot of what I do kind of has the hum of Teddy somewhere within the fabric of me. If I'm recalling correctly, he was about 33, 34 at the time that he died. I just turned 33 this year. Think about all the things he missed. He didn't get to see Obama doesn't know what it's like to see like an iPhone or YouTube or any of these things that we see like every day. And I try to approach my life with this kind of question of what would it mean? 
what would it mean for Teddy to see this thing? And what would it mean for him? How can I make a moment for him using my own life? Because he's not here to like experience that level of vitality. So how can I like up this moment to something that's loud enough for him to hear him wherever he is? So You know, it it kind of feels like that relationship when you lose someone through death, it can kind of feel like that relationship continues on. You don't necessarily see them anymore. But I feel at times that Teddy and I have grown even closer in the way that he shows up in different places in my life, including right now. I think we can utilize those relationships in so many different ways. I think even with my grandfather, he's still alive and I hope that he's not in any pain and I hope that he doesn't get in any pain and this whole process is so painless, but he is really the reason I'm doing what I'm doing today. I'm helping people and I'm doing therapy and I get my hard work from him and it's continuing to remember and utilize those things that these people give us in whatever ways that we can so we we include those memories and we include those tools and different fun things that we learn from these people and we try to bring those into every day situations, even if it's just taking a moment and pausing and just saying, hey, like, Teddy would really have liked this or my grandmother would have loved this day today. She always loved when it rained and because we could sit inside and watch I Love Lucy, (laughs) you know, and we could just snuggle together and it's, it's still pausing and and having those moments to reflect on those relationships. There was this moment where everyone was talking so positively about Teddy. And I realized, you know, there's always that cliche of why is it that at a funeral suddenly everyone's just talking about everything that you did that was good and is it is it is it a lie? Is it a cover up, you know? Really what I think it is is that when when someone's no longer with us, the thing that radiates most importantly is their goodness. That's the thing that matters. You realize that the stuff that you got upset about kind of was a little bit with you. And the stuff that like really mattered, I think it's like what you said, it's the stuff that inspired you to be something different and really, really spoke to you to be something different. When thinking about grief and loss and the process of it, it's important to remember that we all go through the stages of grief and loss. There's denial and anger and depression and acceptance and we'll kind of vacillate 
between all of the stages. Whereas one day I've kind of already accepted that this is the reality. And then the next day I'll go back to being depressed. And then the next day I'll be like, no, this isn't happening. There's no way this is happening. And then I'll go all the way back to, no, this is happening. We're okay with it. Um, So with these stages that we go through, you might get to acceptance one day, but it's also okay if we kind of go back and forth through some of the other stages. Um, But the stages are important to recognize and and be kind to yourself. So I'm in the stage of, I'm putting a new one in there. I'm in the stage of chaos and not knowing what I need. That is my stage. I'm claiming it. I'm going to be in this stage and try to um, be with the chaos as much as I can. Um, but also try to utilize what I can to help ground me. I love that idea that you're claiming your own stage. I think in hearing and reflecting on what we we put together today, it's so important to be clear with other people as to where you're just at. And by doing so, we normalize that these stages do vacillate, that it's on a spectrum of light and Grieving is a rainbow, much like happiness. It has so many different versions of color. And I think if we could just kind of take the time to explain to each other where we're at, that openness will allow all of us to feel a little bit less trapped and not struggle to do that containment as much as as we do because it constricts us too. So in, in kind of the spirit of, of Teddy and some of the things that we're talking about, this is a piece that I wrote a few months after the funeral that I just wanted to share. We always think there is time until there is not. The second hands recoiling away from our touch the way a slighted lover does, its finger collapsing into a fist, to later hit us in the gut. The dizzying feeling, loss of balance, crumbling into a heap on the floor as wet tears come out of previously dried eyes. We always think there is time until there is not. The breath ceasing to be, its resplendent taste lost in a matter of days and years. We frantically try to get the heart beating again, giving it mouth to mouth. We scream in futile frustration, realizing that it's all too late. There's nothing we can say. Remorse over having not done this, having not said that, having not been present. We always think there is time until there is not, wishing to make up those seconds that never occurred throwing an enormous amount of pennies into empty mall fountains. Apologies that should not have been kept in the highest shelf, but instead should have been passed out the way communion is given every Sunday with humility. We always think there is time until there is not, expecting that love will blossom on its own, that without water it can survive, And so we delay our kisses and stubbornly begrudge the I love yous to the ones who deserve it to hear it, not just every day, but every wilting moment. Every time a person sneezes, you should get on your knees if you love them and say, God bless you, you, and all of you who makes me believe. We always think there is time until there is not. 
standing before an open casket that represents decay, or maybe the sand falling out of the hourglass, tumbling onto the floor, its granules a reminder that we too can be swept up so easily. We always think there is time until there is not. To live, to learn, to love, to laugh, to lament, but hopefully to never put off for later. personal and vulnerable and deep episode that we did together and Fabrice I appreciate you taking this hard but necessary journey with me um, and being vulnerable in this space with me because I definitely wanted to to open this up and and be authentic and share this with with you and with Alan and with our listeners. So thank you. So you can check us out on soundcloud.com slash mindful chat. We're also up on Twitter, so go ahead and follow us at Mindful Chat. We have lots of fun things to say on there. You can send any questions or topics that you'd like to hear us talk about to mindfulchatterpodcast at gmail.com. And we are also up on iTunes as Mindful Chatter. This has been Mindful Chatter. We will see you all next time. Bye.